I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack West, medical oncologist at the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in the Los Angeles area, and I'm very happy to be here on Lung Cancer Considered, the IASLC podcast, speaking with Dr. Ramon Ramiporta. Dr. Ramiporta is clinical chief of the Department of Thoracic Surgery at the Hospital Universitaria Mutua Terraza in Barcelona, Spain. Dr. Rami Porta served as the chair of the IASLC Staging and Prognostic Factors Committee from 2009 to 2016, and he is the executive editor of the second edition of the IASLC Staging Manual in Thoracic Oncology and also of the IASLC Staging Handbook in Thoracic Oncology, published in 2016. He's also one of the presidents for the upcoming World Conference on Lung Cancer in Barcelona in September of 2019. Thanks so much for joining us, Ramon. Oh, thank you for asking me. Let's start by talking about uh, the work you've done in, in staging. And that has undergone some revisions uh, under your supervision and guidance over the last decade or so. Uh, why have we needed those updates, and what have the key refinements been over that interval? Yes, well, you know, the, uh, the anatomic extent of the tumor, which is what the TNM classification measures, is not perfect. So the more we collect cases from around the world and analyze them, the better we understand how each component plays its own role in the, the classification. So for the eighth edition, which is the one active now, we collected nearly 100,000 patients from many countries around the world, and we were able to, uh, to dissect uh, the, uh, the, all the components of the T, N, and M uh, classifications so that now we understand better the role of tumor size, for example. And now we know that each centimeter counts, and therefore we made more uh, T categories based on tumor size. But we also learned that uh, quantifying nodal disease is important. Uh, for this edition, we quantify it by uh, the number of uh, nodal stations involved, and the more nodal stations involved, the worse the prognosis. So this is something that we could not put into the, into the official TNM because uh, these analyses uh, were performed in the pathologic classification setting uh, because we, we needed a, a nice subset of patients who had undergone resection and a good or at least a clinically acceptable systematic nodal dissection. So when we wanted to validate uh, these findings in, at the clinical setting, it didn't work well because the instruments that we have for clinical uh, classification and staging are not so accurate enough as a properly performed systematic nodal dissection. But this quantification of nodal disease after the operation, after the pathologist has examined 
all the removed lymph nodes and the nodes that are in the lung specimen tell us that uh, we can refine the prognosis for those patients postoperatively. So it's not the same to have one nodal station involved or several. And finally, for the, uh, for the uh, distant metastasis, the M component, we also understand better their prognosis. Now we know that having one extrathoracic metastasis has better prognosis than having several extrathoracic metastases. Although we need more patients uh, with advanced disease to uh, better understand the role of the organ location of the metastasis, for example, which we could not define with the data we had for the eighth edition. So we hope that for the ninth edition, we will have more patients with advanced disease and that we will be able to further refine the M component of the classification. Do we need to have additional dimensions uh, beyond TNM? Because increasingly, over the last decade or more, we've had a transformation, at least in our management of advanced disease, that has been based on recognizing important biological differences uh, related to the probability of benefiting from targeted therapies against driver mutations and uh, and, and also immunotherapy. Uh, and there's also increasing ability to detect and potentially act on uh, on serum markers, things like circulating tumor DNA or micrometastatic disease. Do you envision that these parameters will find their way into future staging systems? Or is that something that might happen in the next five or 10 years? Or is this hard to envision happening in the foreseeable future? I think it may happen. Uh, we are trying to do it for the ninth edition, which is uh, due to be published in 2024. Uh, at least we will try. I'm not sure if we will manage all of this because there is a lot of information on different prognostic factors. But it's true that uh, the TNM classification in its eighth, eighth edition explains about 60% of the prognosis. <clears throat> that is this 40% that uh, is led by other factors like uh, age, uh, comorbidities, uh, uh, different types of, type of tumors, medical systems, and so on. So we need to add to the TNM something else that will allow us to refine prognosis for a given patient with a given tumor, particular patient with a particular type of tumor. And adding biomarkers is one of the objectives that we have for the ninth edition. In fact, the data set that we are using now to collect cases for the ninth edition contains several pages with uh, biomarkers so that institutions who are able to, to do them, to have them, will, 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 will record them there so that we will try to make what we call prognostic groups. You know, for example, this is very simple. Stage 4 adenocarcinoma with or without EGFR mutation. Same anatomy with different biology. We now know that this uh, will have a different prognosis. If the patient with EGFR mutation is treated with uh, targeted therapy, 
the likelihood of response is very high and prognosis is better. The other patient with EGFR negative or all negative biomarkers will be treated with standard chemotherapy, the response of which is much lower, so prognosis is worse. And we can add many, you know, as many as we know. And uh, if we have efficient drugs to uh, deal with uh, the effects, metabolic effects of these mutations, prognosis will be better. But what we cannot do, and this is very important to understand, is to mix units. So we cannot put the EGFR with, together with the anatomic descriptors of the M component. So uh, malignant pleural effusion, pleural nodules, and so on. This is anatomy. So if we add EGFR, we will be mixing anatomy with biology, but we can combine them. I mean, there is a subtle difference between mixing and combining. So we can combine anatomy, which is TNM, clinical factors like age, sex, comorbidities, the intensity of SUV max, we can, we can add the biomarkers and so on. So, and combining all this in an algorithm, we will be able to predict prognosis for an individual patient in a much better way than we can do it now. Because prognosis arising from the TNM classification is based on, on a large number of patients. So it's, it's a global prognosis of certain cohorts of patients that have been studied. And this prognosis that we have for T1A and 0 M0 at stage four and so on may not apply to the particular patient that we are uh, managing in our everyday practice. You mentioned that only a subset of the cases that are out there had the full uh, nodal dissection and the, the the quality level that was sufficient to include in the assessment of prognosis and uh, con contribution to the staging uh, process. Uh, the in the U.S. Right now, one of the challenges in lung cancer is that too many patients are undergoing surgery by people who dabble in thoracic surgery, but really don't have a specific training in it and end up getting insufficient uh, surgeries, incomplete dissections, uh, mediastinoscopies of varying quality, often quite poor, if even attempted. What is the state of thoracic surgery in Spain? And if you can speak to it, your sense of it uh, in Europe in terms of uh, what proportion of patients are getting surgeries done by dedicated, well-trained thoracic surgeons uh, in a probably more centralized uh, setting than, versus less qualified surgeries done uh, more broadly? Yes, uh, you are right. Um, in Spain, uh, lung cancer is only uh, treated surgically by board-certified thoracic surgeons. I don't think that nowadays uh, that we have had these uh, separate specialties in the early 1970s. I don't think there is anybody else, a general surgeon or, a, or any or abdominal surgeon or something like that uh, dealing with lung cancer patients. Uh, I don't think this happens in Spain now, although it, it may have happened you know, 40 or 50 years ago. In Europe, it depends on every country. 
usually most European countries have thoracic surgery as a well-defined specialty. Some countries, the specialty is cardiothoracic. So you may have people doing heart surgery and lung cancer, but it is the exception. And even in those countries where they have the cardiothoracic certification, most specialties, most specialists deal with either the heart or the lung uh, or general thoracic surgery. So I would say that most patients with lung cancer, with lung cancer in Europe, are treated by general thoracic surgeons. And yeah, it makes a difference, you know, because uh, if you have a narrow field of, of, of a specialty, as well, narrow, relatively narrow field of thoracic surgery, you are more aware of the indications of the changes in the TNM and of the latest guidelines on diagnosis, staging, and therapy. While if you cover several different specialties, then you may not be so well updated with these uh, innovations. I know you're very well aware of the uh, emerging data supporting CT chest, uh, or sorry, supporting chest CT screening as a uh, as a method of prevention uh, in, or at least early detection in patients with uh, with lung cancer. In the U.S., uh, we have started to act on those data and do have chest CT screening as a possibility, but it's very underutilized. Uh, what is the state of chest CT screening in uh, Spain and uh, elsewhere in Europe? Has that taken hold at all? And if not, what is the holdup? Well, in Europe, there are uh, lung cancer screening programs. Uh, there is one in the UK. There is another one in, the, in Denmark, I think and another one somewhere else. In Spain, there is no program. And there is no program because uh, when we analyze the economical factor of having enough scanners and enough people dedicated to screening, uh, it means a lot of money. So I I don't think that our administrations are ready to uh, devote such an amount of money. I don't think that the screening programs can be integrated into everyday clinical work. I think our radiologists are already working uh, many hours a day. The CT scanners work almost 24 hours a day. So we cannot really uh, wedge in the extra amount of of scanners, scans that we should do to screen the population of Spain. Uh, smoking is still high. There's a high rate of smoking people in Spain. So the people at risk uh, is very high. And so I think that the administrations are very reluctant to start screening programs, even if in the long run, you know, many years after the initiation of the screening program, we might have some advantages, you know, by giving people more uh, useful work years and so on, which is difficult to calculate. But in the end, you know, if you provide uh, people with uh, more health, they are more useful to the society and you can have uh, 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 an advantage but many years after the uh, the starting of the programs. That's great. Thank you. I, I, I hope it changes. Obviously, this is 
this is a really important uh, but underutilized tool that I think could improve survival from lung cancer remarkably. But it's uh, it's unfortunate that uh, that this is so challenging to implement because of cost and other practical considerations. Let's turn to the World Conference on Lung Cancer, which is coming up in Barcelona in early September. You are a president of the conference. Congratulations and, and good luck with that. And I'm certainly looking forward to uh, coming to this important meeting and to Barcelona. I imagine that Barcelona is a very strong draw for this global population of people coming. Uh, can you give a sense of what kind of attendance numbers you're expecting for the meeting? Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, uh, Jack. Uh, we, uh, we already have more than 6,000 uh, registrations, and we expect to have more than 7,000 participants. That's terrific. Uh, how important is it that this is a multidisciplinary meeting? Obviously, even in your group of the people who are leading in developing the program, it is multidisciplinary with with uh, you from surgery and medical oncology and others, uh, it seems that this is pretty unique in being a meeting that that has this draw of so many disciplines. Uh, how how is the program done to to maximize this confluence of different specialties? Well, you know the ISLC was created to be international, as its names as its name says but also multidisciplinary from the very beginning. Uh, nowadays, uh, the amount of research done on lung cancer is, is enormous. Uh, I have just checked on, on PubMed, and in 2017, there were more than 22,000 papers published on lung cancer. So no single specialty can manage all this. And we know that the GMRs and the patients are very complex. And each specialty uh, looks at the facet of, of, of the whole uh, patient and tumor. And we need to have many people looking at the patient and his tumor to uh, cover as many facets as possible. I imagine this as, as an eye of, of an insect, you know, with different facets. You need them all to have a clear picture of the reality. So we need all this knowledge uh, to put in in our multidisciplinary uh, team committees. And the, the World Conference of Lung Cancer is a huge multidisciplinary team. So for each topic, we have tried to combine as many specialists as possible in the different sessions having medical oncologists, basic scientists, uh, thoracic surgeons, radiotherapists, nurses. We, we also uh, encourage the participation of our colleagues in nursing. And there are even patients, that is the patients advocate a track with uh, their own uh, uh, sessions, although also multidisciplinary. So this is the philosophy of the association. To, to, to have a big meeting with as many specialists as possible to cover all the different facets of what lung cancer and other thoracic malignancies mean. And this is going to uh, 
be a huge event, both for the content and the opportunity to network with colleagues, but also to be in Barcelona, a wonderful city. Uh, can you just suggest a couple of the key cultural highlights that are worth people trying to make time to see while they're there or eat? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and the most, uh, most of these uh, sites are within walking distance in downtown Barcelona. So for those interested in art, for example, we have uh, really, really treasures of the Gothic art, like the cathedral, uh, St. Mary of the Sea, and the Pine Tree Church, which are uh, really examples, models of Gothic art. But maybe in the latest uh, 20 years or so, the modernist art, which is from the beginning of the 20th century, it's the, the, the Catalonian uh, branch of the uh, uh, nouveau art. In, but in, the art, in the works by Antonio Gaudí, the architect Antonio Gaudí. So we have his houses along Paseo de Gracia, uh, Batrio House, La Pedrera, and also Park Güell and, and the, uh, the magnificent uh, Sagrada Familia Temple, which is still uh, being finished. And for those who like other types of art, we have the best Picasso Museum in the world. It's here in Barcelona. It is very nicely set in chronological order so that you can see the evolution of uh, this genius of, 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 uh, of the painting. And as for food, we have excellent seafood. In, the, uh, in any restaurant near the seaside in Barcelona, you can have uh, seafood paella or uh, different types of uh, you know, shrimp and cockles, and mussels and whatever. And then the tapas, tapas is, you know, the small uh, pieces of food that usually you are given with a drink and you can have a meal uh, just with tapas. They are delicious and varied and uh, very, uh, very convenient or for, for, for warm weather. I mean, in, you know, in warm weather, you don't want to eat big quantities of food. So tapas are ideal for a snack or a quick lunch. Uh, one of the cultural features uh, there is dinner is a later prospect than in, in many places. I mean, we, <laughs> you eat dinner at 11, 1130 or something, and, and that's just the norm. I remember going out and being struck by families being there with small kids at midnight having dinner. How do we manage that? Any tips for having dinner there and then being awake for the morning sessions? Is there going to be a siesta program at all in the, the meeting? <laughs> Well, we didn't think uh, of siesta because, you know, the, uh, the, the program is so packed uh, with sessions that there is uh, no room for siesta. But, you know, here the weather is very good. So we are uh, quite outdoorsy people. And uh, having dinner in full sun is, is against our nature. So uh, we, we, we tend to have dinner late when the, when the sun is just uh, gone. Uh, we, we, we sleep little. Yes, it's true. In Spain, we sleep little. But, but in the morning, for those who are not used uh, to this, uh, a cold shower and a double espresso uh, will do the trick. And then uh, that will, uh, will allow us to go uh, uh, till uh, lunchtime. Yes. 
Very good. It's a beautiful city, a great setting for what uh, promises to be a terrific meeting. And uh, I really look forward to being there, seeing you, and, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Jack. I'm really proud uh, to, uh, to talk to you and to explain all these novelties of the TNM classification and also uh, what we expect from the World Conference of Lung Cancer. Excellent. Well, on behalf of the IISLC, I'm Dr. Jack West. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IISLC.org for more lung cancer considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.